Our focus today will be in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, please go ahead and turn there with me. But the theme of the text that we'll look at in verses 10 through 12 is along the lines of what we just read. That truly, Jesus says, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. So our text again this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12 and we will consider the topic of our glorious salvation. Our glorious salvation. Now you know by now that throughout this epistle Peter's ultimate goal is to strengthen and to encourage these saints who are scattered abroad to stand firm in their faith as they are suffering for that very faith. As they are being persecuted, as they are suffering various trials, Peter writes to them in order to tell them to stand firm, to consider your glorious salvation and hope in Christ and stand firm. The text before us is no different. That is Peter's focus in these verses is to look at our great and glorious salvation. We have seen the surety of the Christian's inheritance in this introduction of 1 Peter. We have seen the sanctification that the Lord brings as we walk through various trials, that our faith is tested by fire, and then as we endure, we are refined, we are sanctified, we are made more like Christ through our hardships and suffering. And now today we turn our attention to this text, to this idea that undergirds both of those truths, our inheritance and the sanctification that comes through trials. We look at this text and we see the glorious nature and truth and work of salvation. So with that, let's turn and read our text. I'm going to ask you to please stand if you're able as we read God's word to show honor and reverence for God's great truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This is God's word. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated and bow with me now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before your holy and awesome presence. And Lord, in, in one sense, I pray that we would come trembling because you are awesome. You are great, greatly to be praised. You are, as one of the prophets saw, holy, holy, holy. So we come with trembling hearts. But we also come, Lord, with boldness. Because we have a great high priest, the man Jesus Christ, who took our sin, who bore your wrath on the cross, who rose from the dead and has ascended back to the right hand of the majesty on high, where he sits making intercession for us, his people. So, Lord, we come trembling and we come boldly. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill our hearts and our minds. May we not be, as your people were, the people of Israel, may we not be of dull heart, and mind and slow to hear but may we actively engage our hearts and minds and have ears to hear eyes to see and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply the truth 
Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you strengthen us by the glorious truths we see in this text about our glorious salvation? Lord, would you cause the cares of the world to grow dim? And would you cause the eternal promises and realities of our salvation to shine brightly to us? Lord, we ask that your spirit would move for the strength in the hearts of men fail in this work. But Lord, your power never fails. Your strength never wanes. Your spirit is never left looking for ways to take your word and apply it in our lives. Your spirit is our helper. He is the spirit of truth. He reveals and illuminates the truth. He reveals the truth to lead us to repentance. Lord, there's so much that you can accomplish through the proclamation of your word, and we ask that you would do that today, that you would work about your plans and purposes in us so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, so that we would seek to cut off the arm of the flesh Put to death the sin that remains in us and to walk holy and set apart lives before you, our holy, holy, holy God. We thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Pray that the name of our Savior would be lifted high among us, his people, today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we consider the greater, the broader context of this epistle, as you're starting to understand, every section deals with encouragement for the saints. And as we consider that greater context, the intent of this passage, which is, might be a little confusing on the surface, but when we consider this broad context of the entire letter, the purpose for which Peter included this by the Spirit of God becomes very clear. For those who are suffering, whether persecution or any of the various trials and tribulations of life, there should be no greater encouragement for those saints than to consider your salvation, than to consider the glorious good news of Jesus the work and application of the Holy Spirit to apply Jesus to your life and the message of the gospel to the church within the greater context of world history and within the greater context of God's redemptive plan. As we consider the idea of suffering, which is just all over the pages of Peter's epistle, there is nothing that grounds and increases our hope more than to consider our salvation. So consider Peter's message here. He says that your salvation was so great, your Savior was so great that the prophets long ago made careful searches and inquiries to understand more about this Savior. They studied the coming Messiah carefully. Peter tells us how this work was accomplished by the Son, that he suffered greatly but then was glorified because his sacrifice was accepted. We see that the apostles, those men who were eyewitnesses to Christ, saw these glorious truths and by the power of the Spirit proclaimed Christ and the Spirit came and brought power and gave effectiveness to that proclamation and dead souls were brought to life. And we see that this salvation is so glorious. It is such a perfect fulfillment of the wisdom and the holiness and the wrath and the love of God all coming together in this one moment in history when the Son was crushed by the Father for our redemption. This salvation is so great that even the angels in glory long to look into it. They long to understand it. They long to see it accomplished so that they may glorify God for that plan and work of salvation. 
So dear friend, if you are walking or working or wading in the deep waters of trial and tribulation, and if you're not now, you will be one day, my encouragement to you today is to consider your great salvation. Remember your great salvation and let it cause you to be strengthened in your inner man as you seek to battle sin and as you seek to walk through the trials of life so that you may stand in God's grace throughout every trial and temptation. Look to your glorious Savior and the great salvation that he accomplished. And so that is how we will consider this text before us, considering this idea of our great salvation and how it fits in in the history of man, what was accomplished, how is it applied, and how glorious it is that even these angels long to see it accomplished. So let's begin then, firstly, looking at the, the idea that this salvation was announced by the prophets. It was announced by the prophets, really that's seen throughout this whole text, but we'll begin by looking at that idea in verse 10. As to the salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. We'll stop there. These prophets of old, think about men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and on and on. These men were prophets of God. They were messengers of the Lord, both to his people and to the surrounding people to announce the gospel message and the coming judgment of the Lord. They were also messengers to and for us. And these men, despite seeing glorious things, and we'll look at some of those in a moment, despite these glorious visions and this empowerment and entrusting and sending out from the Lord to go and proclaim the message that he had given them, even despite all of that, they sought to know more about what they were declaring. They were not dull of heart and of hearing. They wanted to know more of the truth. So right off the bat, ask yourself the question, Am I overly content with what I know about the truth? Or do I make careful searches and inquiries to know more about the Lord? The, the word overly content there is important in that question because we are content with the Lord's revelation, with the Holy Scripture, with the 66 books of the Bible. But are you overly content in that you do not make the searches and inquiries, and the studies of the truth that you ought to because the glory of God is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Does your soul find nourishment and sustaining strength in learning more about your Lord? Or are you pacified with some of the simple facts of the Bible and filling the rest of your time and your mind with worldly things? Again, consider some of these prophets. The prophet Isaiah. You're familiar probably with Isaiah chapter 6. He's carried up to see this vision of angels surrounding the Lord's throne, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah saw that glorious vision, and yet he's one of these prophets who made careful searches into the scriptures to know more about the coming Messiah and the Father and the Spirit and the God who accomplishes all things. Jeremiah 1 verse 1. The Lord begins that prophecy telling Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That was the Lord's words to this prophet, that he was set apart, that he was consecrated, that he was going to be a messenger of God to the nations. Those are some pretty strong laurels on which to rest. But Jeremiah made careful searches and inquiries into the promises and the words of God. The book of Ezekiel, 
That, that prophecy begins in Ezekiel chapter 1 with this glorious vision of four figures or, or four beings. And as Ezekiel looked beyond those things, he saw the divine radiance of the glory of God. And he describes what he saw in Ezekiel 1 verse 28. He said that the Lord's glory was as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Ezekiel says, I saw this picture of the glory of the Lord in the greatest way that a man can see it. I fell on my face because of this wonderful glory. And then I got up and I went and made careful searches and inquiries into the scriptures, into the coming person and work of Jesus Christ, into the God of all creation. We could look at other prophets. We could go through all the prophets and see these various ways that they saw the glory of the Lord and these great things that the Lord did and accomplished through them and remember that they desired to know more. They desired to better understand Christ. Again, ask the question, do you make careful searches in the scriptures to better understand the Lord? Do you carefully study and search the scriptures to better understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the work of redemption that is accomplished through the Godhead? These prophets did. Now let's look kind of specifically at some of what they did. Peter says that they prophesied of the grace that was to come. The prophets were proclaimers of the truth. This is one of the reminders as they were proclaimers of the truth before the coming of Christ, of the centrality and the focus of Christ in the scriptures. For the Old Testament looked to the coming of Christ. The four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak of the life and the ministry and the sacrifice of Christ. You move into church history through the epistles, and you see the founding of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the focus even of that. You get to the book of Revelation and you read about the second coming and the eternal kingdom of Christ. All scripture points to Christ. Not every word, not even necessarily every verse, but all the scripture. When you take a passage in its whole, it points to Christ. And the prophets of the Old Testament understood this. They made learning of and knowing Christ their greatest goal. Christ had not yet come. They were looking to a coming Messiah of whom they were prophesying. And they looked to know more of him, who he would be, what would be his work, how would his work be accomplished. Those Old Testament saints were saved the exact same way that we are saved, by faith in the Messiah. They looked toward his coming. We look back at his finished work, but all of history, every soul that the Lord has ever saved was saved in this one way, by coming to Christ in faith. Coming to Christ in faith and repentance. They did not see this in full, and yet they desired to know more. There's some application in that for us. The prophets were, were in this unknown. They didn't see it in full. We walk through days and times of unknown. When you consider the context of suffering that Peter writes, when you walk in that unknown, whatever it may be, dear friend, look to Christ. Not in some broad, vague way. Look to Christ in his word. Study his person. Study his work. Study his commands. Seek to do what he says. Just as Christ was the great hope of the prophets, Christ is the great hope of his people 
today. So Peter says they prophesied of the grace that would come, and they made careful searches and inquiries. We've talked about that a little bit, but I want to expand on another idea just briefly. Proverbs 2, verses 4 and 5 say regarding wisdom. They say, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. These prophets of old sought to understand Christ like the proverb is telling us to seek godly wisdom, to prize it as gold, to prize it as a great treasure, to seek to learn and to discover and to discern. And when you do, the proverb says you will learn the fear and the knowledge of God. When you prize and prioritize Jesus Christ in the same way as your great treasure and you seek to find him and you seek to know him, you will know him. He is revealed. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is found in the pages of Scripture. So again, I want to ask this question. I think we kind of asked it earlier, but we're going to ask it again because this is one of the questions that the text begs of us. Do you seek the knowledge and revelation of Christ as you pursue the other treasures and pleasures of this life? Really, that question should be even reworded from that. Do you seek the ultimate and eternal treasure of Christ far abundantly beyond the treasures and pleasures of this world? The treasure that Christ is does not compare to the, to the minimal things of this world. So if you compare your seeking of Christ to the things that you seek in this world, you've got it all wrong. Seek Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Allow the things of this world, as the song says, to grow strangely dim as you turn your eyes upon Jesus. The Apostle Paul would say that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Count all things as loss, as rubbish, as nothing, as worthless in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Just ask yourself, do you count all things loss in comparison to knowing Christ? The Lord will cause you to know Christ in various ways. So often, as we've talked about throughout the introduction to this epistle, the Lord causes you to see and to know and to grow closer to Christ through the fires of trial and suffering and hardship. You know, we, we can kind of broaden this out now and, and think about this in, in that larger context. Ask the question, as you walk through trials and suffering, do you, as you're in these fires, do you make careful searches and inquiries to Christ? That's not an admonishment, friends. That's an encouragement. As you walk through the trial, look to know and to be drawn closer to Christ. Stop and think about the glorious salvation and hope that awaits you. You suffer in this life, yes. But the glory that is to come is far greater. It far outweighs any hardship that you or I could ever face. And friends, there are some great hardships. There are some great trials that you may go through in this life. But the value of knowing Christ is so much greater. The value of having Christ is so much greater than the suffering that you will endure in this world. You know, it said we're, we're studying a writing of Peter, and it said historically that, of course, Peter was martyred for his faith. He was crucified, history tells us. But one thing that I don't think we've discussed the last couple of weeks is that Peter was crucified most likely after watching his wife be crucified for her faith. And history tells us that there were three simple words that Peter uttered to his wife 
as she was suffering, as she was being killed for her faith in Christ. What were those words? Peter told his most beloved and, and prized treasure in this life, as she hung on a cross, remember our Lord. Remember our Lord. As you walk through whatever may come in this life, there is no greater encouragement than that. Remember our Lord. Remember Jesus Christ come in the flesh, learning obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, dying so you don't have to bear God's wrath in eternity, but rather you can be counted righteous. You can be credited with the righteousness of Christ and you can go experience eternal glory when the Lord calls you home, not because of anything that you have done, but because you have a great Savior. Dear friends, remember our Lord. So we see that this salvation was announced by the prophets. And moving into verse 11, we also see that it was accomplished by the Son. It was accomplished by the Son. The prophets sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There's two things to, to think about there. Sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. While those of you who are in Christ have already thought about the sufferings of Christ, you cannot be in Christ and not understand the sufferings of Christ. We don't fully understand them. But surely you have thought about the sacrifice that Christ gave to pay for your sin. But dear friends, we're going to think about it again because it's in the text before us. We know the external pains. Christ was whipped. He was beaten. The skin was ripped off his back as the, as the whips cracked on him over and over and over. He experienced pain that we probably will never know physically. It was surely excruciating. It's hard to even imagine what he was experiencing in that. The nails piercing his hands and feet, hanging up on that cross by those very nails. Pain cannot be described. Dear friends, I think we can also understand on the authority of Scripture that that pain does not compare to what he suffered at the hands of the eternal wrath of the Father. Matthew 27 verses 45 and 46 record that it was after being hung on this cross, probably even hours after being on that cross, that it was finally then when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm sure he did not get accustomed or used to that pain, that physical pain, but it was not the physical pain that caused that cry. That cry came because he bore the full cup of God's wrath. He bore God's wrath in a way that you and I will never have to know because that wrath was removed. Christ drank down the cup in full. So why should we remember this suffering of Christ in the context of Peter's letter, in the, in the context of trial and suffering? Because it's the suffering of Christ that reminds us of his great love for his sheep. It's that suffering, that unmatched suffering of Christ that reminds you of his love for you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. You cannot be plucked out of the Son's hand nor the Father's hand. The Father is greater than all, and no one will snatch you from the Father's hand. You belong to Christ, and He will see you through until the day that your salvation, your faith, is made sight. Later on in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, Peter writes that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. 
Now, there is so much wrapped up in that idea of reconciliation, of Christ dying to bring us to God. But surely an outworking of that is that he died to bring us to God, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to hold us, and to sustain us. So understand that our glorious salvation was accomplished by Christ and draw great strength from the suffering that he went through because that proves his love for you. The prophets told of this suffering of Christ. They, they looked into this suffering of Christ. But they also were, were predi- it was predicted to them by the Spirit of the glories that were to follow. So you have suffering on one hand and glory on the other. So we're going to consider one of those prophets, the book of Isaiah. You, you might be familiar with that 53rd chapter. The suffering servant is is what the NASB titles Isaiah chapter 53. We see that Christ bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The servant suffered greatly at the hands of the Father for the sake of the elect. But what about the chapter before that? There's a heading at the end of Isaiah 52 that, that is just so glorious and, and it ties in to our text here in First Peter. That, that last heading of Isaiah 52 is called the exalted servant. The exalted servant. Isaiah 52 verse 13 says, this is the Lord speaking. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So yes, Christ did suffer, but because of that suffering, he was high and lifted up. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. This is the path that Paul follows, right, in in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ humbled himself, took on flesh, learned obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. He died for our sins, then he rose again, And then he was given by the Father the name above every name. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yes, he was humbled. Yes, he did suffer. But there is glory to follow. There is glory to follow. You ask the question, what, what does that do for us? does a lot for us. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, Therefore, if we died with him, speaking of Christ, of course, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. We died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. That's the encouragement of the accomplished work of Christ at the cross. He has borne the penalty of our sin. He suffered at the cross so that you don't have to suffer. But we also see that if we endure, if we stand fast, if we remain, the Lord promises that we will reign with Christ in glory. The end is not the The reigning, the end, is being united to Christ, being with Christ. And Christ will reign, so naturally, if we are united to him, we will reign with him. That is a promise of the Lord. So if our glorious salvation was announced by the prophets, it was accomplished by the Son, and we also see that it was administered by the Spirit is administered by the Spirit. Pick up some in verse 12. It says, It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, sent from heaven. So salvation, the the Lord's glorious plan of salvation is administered. It is applied by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Keeping with the flow of the text here, Peter says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. The prophets were not serving to their own end, but they were serving you and me. They were serving these saints that Peter was writing to and telling of the Christ, the Messiah, who would come. Their prophecies were an undergirding to the preaching of the Messiah. Christ came, he died, he rose, and he ascended. And so now we, and even the saints immediately after the death of Christ, look back to the Old Testament. We see those prophecies. We see those things that are wrapped up and summed up and fulfilled in Christ. We hear that is the exact message that is proclaimed by the apostles. And then the Spirit of God causes our hearts to come to life. The Holy Spirit is the common thread that ties together the apostles' proclamation and the prophets' prophecy. So let's think about those two works a little bit. Backing up to verse 11, there's something to see there. Peter writes that they were seeking to know the prophets. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he preached the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The term indicating speaks to pointing to something, to revealing something, but most importantly, it speaks to pointing to that thing or revealing that thing in a very, very clear way. It is a clear and evident manifestation. That is the work of the Spirit of God, a clear proclamation of Jesus Christ. The proclamation is not clear. If we water down the message, if we twist or change the message so it better fits the culture, then we are not preaching the gospel of Christ according to the Spirit of God. The Spirit is a spirit of clarity. The message is a clear message. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Nothing more and nothing less. Prophetic voices of the prophets proclaimed Christ according to the truth. In evangelicalism today, you hear this this running theme of we want to speak with a prophetic voice to an issue. Prophetic voices speak clearly. Prophetic voices do not muddy the water. The message of Christ is clear. If you want to speak with a prophetic voice, speak the word of Christ with clarity. Do not add to it. Do not bring the worldly philosophies of men into the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. It is not our gospel. Preach Christ. That's what the prophets did. They clearly predicted beforehand the sufferings of Christ. What about the apostles? There is an administration of the Holy Spirit over the ministry of the apostles as well. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered the message that they preached and proclaimed. Matthew Henry writes that the efficacy of evangelical ministry depends upon the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Your message is not effective if it's not Spirit-filled. Henry continued... The gospel is the ministration of the Spirit, and the success of it depends upon His operation and His blessing. You preach the word that the Spirit revealed because the Spirit will not bless and empower any other message. That's what the apostles did. They preached a clear gospel. So let's stop here for a point of encouragement and then some application as well. Um, We understand that this salvation is administered by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that empowers the work of God that brings the Word to life in our souls so that we may see our sin, repent, and have faith in Christ. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that, the Spirit then is living in us. He takes up His dwelling in us. He will not leave you. The Holy Spirit of God is your helper, your encourager. 
He is, he is that, the one that applies the word of God when you are in the throes of trial and tribulation. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the truth to mind and encourages and builds you up. The Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. The Spirit is the promise of God that he will not forsake you. In way of application, let us strive to be like the apostles and the prophets. Let us be spirit-empowered in our proclamation of the truth. But friends, let me tell you that emotion does not always indicate spiritual power. The Lord can work through emotions, and oftentimes he does. We could all think of preachers who preach with great power and fire and emotion and are filled with the Spirit. Far beyond that, the Spirit of God works through the proclamation of the truth. You can be as dry and bland of a person as possible. But when you proclaim the glory of Christ, the good news of Christ, with His Spirit in you and empowering and leading what you say, that is what the Lord works through. The effectivity of the gospel depends on the Holy Spirit adding power to the proclamation. We add no power with our emotions or with our lack of emotions. It is the Spirit who empowers the Word. Paul would tell the Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we are to preach by the Spirit, we must walk by the Spirit. We must walk in the truth. If you want to proclaim the good news of Christ, dear friend, proclaim it with the truth. Don't add, don't subtract, don't change, don't soften, don't harden. Don't change the word of God. The word of God is authoritative. So our glorious salvation is announced by the prophets. It was accomplished by the Son. It was administered by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, it is anticipated by the angels. Look at the end of verse 12. Peter writes of this gospel that was proclaimed. And at the end of the verse, he said, These are things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. Now, I think... This is just, it's a fascinating inclusion into Scripture to me. When you think about the angels, they are in heaven experiencing the perfect worship of God. As believers, that's what we long for. We long to lay aside this body of death and go to be with the Lord where we battle sin and hardship and suffering no more. The angels experience that now. This moment while we are plodding along this path of life, the angels are in heaven worshiping before the throne of God. And yet Peter says this salvation is a thing into which the angels long to look. The primary part of God's glorious plan of salvation is what you and I experience right now. God's glory is revealed in salvation in our experiences of this life. MacArthur puts this rather simply and clearly. He said that the angels seek to understand salvation so that they might glorify God more fully, which is their primary reason for existence. Angels long to see this salvation because in this salvation, in what we experience today, the Lord is glorified by his power at work and his people. The journey that we walk as as we are pilgrims and aliens and sojourners, this journey is part of God's glory in salvation. Dear friend, that should offer you such great comfort to understand that whatever you go through in this life, when you battle sin and temptation, when you suffer hardship, when there is strife and difficult days, 
when you are dealing with exhaustion, this part of your life as a saint of God reveals God's glory in salvation. Walk with Christ. Allow Him to be glorified through the things that you experience in this life. Now, we'll kind of move towards a conclusion here. If you have a Bible, turn with me back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, and we want to, in this text, we can get a picture, get an idea of our salvation and the angels' worship in heaven. Pick up at verse 6, Revelation 5, verse 6. Apostle John writes there, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, the lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here the Lamb is worshipped. Here the Lamb is exalted. But this was the four creatures and the 24 elders, so let's keep reading in Revelation 5 because the angels come into play. Verse 11, John continues. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's what the, the angels experience in a way even today. They are around the throne of the Lamb who is worthy and that is their song. What an appropriate place to end our, our message, our time this morning as we consider our glorious salvation because one day we will join that chorus. One day we will join with all the saints to sing, Worthy is the Lamb. And to the King who sits on the throne and the Lamb, Worthy, praise, blessing, honor, power, dominion, might, forever and ever and ever. That is the consummation of our glorious salvation. Our glorious salvation was announced by the prophets, they proclaimed the sufferings and the coming glory of Christ. Our salvation was accomplished by the Son. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Our salvation is administered and applied by the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Spirit who brings life to dead souls at the proclamation of the gospel. And it's a salvation that is anticipated by the angels. They are in God's presence even now. But they long to worship God in the fullness, in the consummation of this glorious plan of salvation. 
They long to see God's work in our lives to bring dead souls to life and to keep and sustain saints all the way to glory. One day, the consummation of those things all come and we will join with the everlasting chorus praising the Lord in perfection with no sin, no suffering, no pain, no restrictions. We worship in spirit and in truth and in fullness one day. One day. But friends, until that day, press on. Until that day, press on even when you feel like a weary soldier. Even when you feel like a beaten down sojourner, press on toward Christ. Press on toward the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Press on because this salvation is not only a present hope. This salvation is an eternal promise. And it is an eternal reality for those in Christ. It may not seem like that day is coming. The life can be heavy and difficult. Let's remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, We must not lose heart while our outer man wastes away. Because we must not lose heart while the outer man wastes away. Because our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look to things not which are seen, but at thing, or not to things that are seen, but to things which are not seen. We look for things which are not temporal, but things that are eternal. Dear friend, press on. Press on through trial. Press on through tribulation. Press on through temptation. Let's look to Christ and understand our glorious salvation. May the Lord strengthen us and supply his every grace for our needs. That is part of our salvation being administered and applied through the Spirit. That the Lord will do that very thing. Strengthen us and supply grace for every need. And may we then in turn glorify him with each moment, with each breath that he gives us on this earth. May we glorify him with everything that we have until that day when we glorify him perfectly in eternity. Let's close in prayer.